You're listening to 92Y Talks. In this episode, Chelsea Clinton sits down to discuss her new book for young readers, It's Your World, Get Informed, Get Inspired, and Get Going. In conversation with best-selling author Meg Wolitzer, Clinton explains how she's inspiring children to make an impact at a young age based on the passion she gained while growing up in the White House. The conversation was recorded on September 21st, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. When my mom heard that I was uh, interviewing you tonight, she said to me, Chelsea Clinton has traveled the world with her parents. She's gone to Pakistan and India and Bangladesh with her mom. Meg, would it kill you to join your father and me in Midtown for dinner? And, and And what did you say? I said, yes, it would kill me. No, I did not say that. So I think we should start with something really, really important. Who do you think should be on the $10 bill? Oh, wow. You know, I'm so happy that you actually asked that question. I was earlier today at Eleanor's Legacy, um, a group in New York that supports women uh, running for office at all levels, at the, at the city level in New York City, at the state level in New York State, and at the, at the national level, um, not only from New York, but across the country. Um, and I had the, the privilege or the burden of, of the last word um, in a actual sense, not just sort of a proverbial sense. And it had been such an inspiring um, couple of hours with all of these amazing women from the Albany City Council to the State Assembly to Senator Klobuchar sort of sharing their stories and, and really just being grateful for Eleanor's legacy's support of them and then very much trying to pay it forward by reaching out and inspiring and encouraging other young women in the audience and beyond um, to enter the arena. And I said I was um, so honored to be recognized and grateful to have the chance to talk about um, what I'm doing to try to encourage young people to participate and how proud I am to live in a city um, that's encouraging young people uh, starting at 14 to participate in our um, budget process. Um, And then I I couldn't help myself. I said, you know, I just feel like it would be remiss uh, at an event for Eleanor's legacy um, to not say as thrilled as I was to have heard um, Rosa Parks mentioned as a possible $10 bill um, honoree, uh, which I think would be more than well-deserved. Uh, I think Eleanor Roosevelt should be considered as well. But Rosa Parks, Great. Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. Harriet Tubman, um, you know, Sally Ride. I mean, we have so many remarkable women, um, and I don't think it should only be the $10 bill necessarily. Yeah, good. That's a great answer. Um, so congratulations on your book. Thank it's you. really wonderful. And I have to say, I was really impressed by so many of the stories of kids, but also I was impressed by you as a kid, oh. your stories of yourself. Um, you were, when you were a little girl, somebody who recognized that it was really possible to make a difference in the world. And you went out and you tried to do that. And you were part of a group that started a paper recycling program. You volunteered at soup kitchens and food banks and park cleanups. You joined Greenpeace and the World Wildlife Fund. Was there one cause that was like your absolute favorite? You know, when I was little, I mean, you mentioned um, in the introduction, 50 Simple Things Kids Can Do to Save the Earth. And that book had such a profound impact on me for a few reasons. You know, one, it treated me seriously. I didn't feel like it was pejorative. I didn't feel like it talked down to me as a kid. It treated me seriously as someone who um, 
not only had a right to know, but had a responsibility to know what was happening with climate change and pollution. And it empowered me with really practical suggestions of what I could do as a kid in Arkansas to make a difference um, in areas that really did concern me. And so, for example, I cut up the plastic rings on soda cans because I didn't want marine wildlife to choke on them any longer. And I kind of read in 50 Simple Things that um, trash from places like Arkansas was killing birds and fish in places like Louisiana. And so that really was so impactful to me because it made me feel included in not only our world, but our future. Um, And when I was younger, um, in particular, questions related to climate change and sustainability really resonated with me. Um, As I've gotten older, I've realized we have the capacity and I think the responsibility to care about lots of different things. But certainly when I was little, um, trying to help clean up the environment was what I was so deeply passionate about, Um, particularly our oceans, even though Arkansas is a landlocked state. Um, So I'm not quite sure why I was so concerned about bleaching and the health of coral reefs and making sure that no bird or fish ever died because of kind of uncut up diet. Um, Coke soda rings, but that is what really kind of motivated me and energized me. Was there a different one at, like, say, age 20? As I've gotten older, um, I certainly still very much care about questions of climate change and sustainability, and sadly, uh, everything that 50 Simple Things Kids Can Do to Save the Earth talks about has only grown only uh, more urgent and more acute. Um, But as I've gotten older and particularly now being a mom uh, of a daughter, everything around equal rights and opportunities or lack of equal rights and opportunities for girls and women here in the United States um, and across the globe, I feel a real sense of urgency to help ameliorate and change um, because I want my daughter and her future friends to have every right um, to every dream that she would want for herself or that they would want for themselves. You call yourself a feminist. Um, was there like one feminist eureka moment in your life? Do you remember that moment, if it existed? Well, one of the things that I talk about um, in the book, because I think it's important to sort of share how I came to the various issues that I talk about in the book and why I think these issues are so um, relevant to kids, um, not only because I've heard from so many kids that they're what they care about, but also because I really remember when I first connected to these issues, um, was I remember being in the first grade and at a PTA meeting, and my mom was at the PTA meeting, and um, I was with the other kids who were waiting for our parents in a a classroom that had kind of become a makeshift kind of play-slash-homework room. Um, And this little boy, um, whom I I called John in the book, which is not his name, but I I hope that he's grown up to be a really nice person, and I didn't want to inadvertently stigmatize him. Um, He he pushed me down, and, and he sat on me. And he was not very nice, and I asked him, I thought quite nicely, to get off of me, and um, then he wouldn't get off me, and so then I started to demand that he get off me, and then I shoved him off me, and the teacher walked over and said that wasn't very ladylike behavior. And I was so taken aback, because I just thought, well, I was trying to be respectful, which hopefully isn't ladylike, hopefully that's just respectful. Um, And I'm the one who am stigmatized, um, and sort of put in my place, and what does it even mean to have a place? And I couldn't have begun to unpack any of that, but it was the first time when I realized how lucky I was to have 
parents and to have friends who didn't see me first as a girl, but how that I couldn't take that for granted. Did you go home and talk about this with your parents? I did go home and talk about it with my parents, um, and and they were kind of outraged, um, but also... It's kind of like a feminist everything. leave it to beaver moment. Yeah, right? a little yeah. bit. Because, I mean, it wasn't... It was infuriating, but it wasn't scary. Yeah. And so it was a leave it to beaver moment, because certainly as I've gotten older, um, I realize how, how lucky I've been, even more so than I understood in first grade, to have parents who... Um, expected me to expect to have equal opportunities and to live in the United States in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries. And so one of the things I try to do in It's Your World um, is to not say there's a moral equivalency, but to highlight the ways in which, particularly girls, since I am um, hoping that this book will really resonate with 10 to 14-year-olds, don't have the same rights and opportunities to boys around the world, and to talk about challenges like child marriage, and to talk about you know, challenges like one out of every nine um, females to be married in the world will be a girl under the age of 15 this year, um, and to say how we still have a lot of work to do here um, in the U.S., but there are even more kind of morally challenging barriers um, that still exist for girls around the world. Yeah. Speaking of around the world, um, when you were really, really young, um, well, I have here an example of your literary stylings from your kindergarten year. Um, and my misspellings. Your misspellings, yes. I didn't want to point that out, but okay. since you did, it's okay. Um, so Chelsea wrote the following letter to Ronald Reagan in 1985. <laughs> um, first of all, before I read it, did he write back? No. No. So there's no kind of like published... Chelsea Clinton, Ronald Reagan, correspondence, no. <laughs> the letters, right. Um, no. So you were five. And Reagan, if you remember this, uh, some of you, uh, he had announced that he was going to make a visit to the Bitburg Cemetery in Germany where Nazis were buried. And I quote you. I should read it in that poetry voice, you know? Please, whatever. I come into the room. No. <laughs> Meg, what, what, whatever you want. Just want to give it, I just want to give it the, what it needs. Dear Mr. President, I have seen the sound of music. The Nazis don't look like very nice people. Please don't go to their cemetery. Sincerely, Chelsea Clinton. With and but I would like with, to, with the sticker. With the st- oh yes, what was that sticker? I, was Rainbows and hearts. Rainbows and hearts. There actually and there was a whole sheet of rainbow and heart stickers behind the letter as a gesture of, of goodwill and, and, seri- and seriousness. You know what might have worked if you'd used scented stationery like strawberry? Maybe I yes. It didn't I, work, I did it? I, it didn't work. It did not work. But at least I had tried. And to me that was the real lesson. Well yeah, you what really strikes me about that letter, I was very touched by it. Um, you had an opinion about right and wrong. Um, what made you feel so strongly about that one? You know, I I don't know. I mean, I, I remember reading in the newspaper that he was going to Germany um, and that as sort of a pro forma part of his visit would be a, a, a trip um, to pay his respects to the National Cemetery where indeed there were high-ranking members of uh, the Third Reich uh, who were buried there. And that outraged me. I just thought it was on some visceral level kind of not our American values. Um, And so I decided to write a letter to the president. um, And he didn't write back. And he wound up going to Bitburg Cemetery. 
Um, and as some of you might remember, he made a sort of truncated visit, um, which also I remember being outraged by, like thinking, you know, you, you, that didn't make me feel better, um, that he only went for eight minutes or however long he was there instead of the 30 minutes that had been anticipated. Um, and yet I had tried it's a moving letter. I, really I, had, I had tried. Um, and to fast forward, um, when my family was planning on moving to Washington, getting ready to move to Washington after my father won the 92 election, uh, my parents said, like, well, what do, you, what do you hope out of this experience? What do you want out of this experience? And I said, I want every kid that writes my father a letter to get a response. <laughs> and, and, act, and so my parents set up a children's correspondence unit um, at the White House uh, so that every kid's letter was sort of treated seriously um, and logged and responded to. And I'm really proud that President Bush continued that and President Obama continued that. And I think once you sort of have three data points and you can draw a line, it hopefully will yeah. we'll be there no, forever. Truly, it, it, it is a wonderful and moving letter. And the fact that you felt so passionate about something, you can see an activist self start to take place in that letter. And I think it's really extraordinary. Well, and I think it's, you know, um, I have had now the, the privilege of talking to kids in Chicago and Atlanta and Little Rock um, and here in New York City this morning. And, and one of the um, things that I feel so passionately about is that there are so many kind of different and valid and valuable ways for kids to engage, um, including writing letters and joining online campaigns and things that either cost just the ticket of a stamp or hopefully um, nothing. Um, Because I do think that it's not only important for whatever um, kind of the the mayor or kind of the White House receives, it's also important to those kids developing a voice Mm -hmm. and a sense of activism and an identity of kind of engagement and participation that hopefully kind of sets a trajectory. Did you keep writing letters to other people? Um, I, I did keep writing letters to other people. Yeah. Did you ever, did you get any answers? I sometimes, I, I, I wrote a letter to President Bush. I did get an answer really? from President Bush's White House. Um, I wrote a couple of letters to our um, city manager and mayor in Little Rock um, and, and got answers to that, although I think those probably um, were because they were hand-delivered. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, well, I think, I think that, I went to the mailbox every day for weeks to see if I got a response from the White House. Um, and it would have meant the world to me to have even gotten a, just an acknowledgement. I think for children, feeling like they're part of something, like that they're in the dialogue, is so tremendously important, and that's so much in your book. Now, having the parents that you do, um, you grew up in a household with passionate conversations around the dinner table. How did your parents' public service affect you? Did you ever wish they were, I don't know, travel agents? Um. Um, no, but I did um, at, at some point uh, wish that my parents were in the health insurance business because I thought that would ensure their health. So oh, I did really? sometimes have kind of in that ways in which kids don't quite understand. Um, there's a difference between the literal meaning of something and kind of the functional meaning of something. No, I've always been so proud of my parents and I have always understood what has motivated my parents to kind of continue their service and their engagement 
And I think that's because of the conversations that we had around the dinner table and the breakfast table and on the way to school and on the way home from school or softball games or soccer games. You know, we just were always talking about the world around us, whether that was um, our neighborhood uh, in Little Rock or kind of our, our planet. And, I, and the conversations that we started now, you know, more than 30 years ago are, are ones that we are continuing today. And I think because my parents always um, treated me seriously and we would go around the table and like, what did you learn in school today would be followed with kind of what my father and mother had done, um, that I always felt a, a part of their lives and the ways in which um, they were always clearly so focused to ensure that I knew that they were part of my life. Yeah. How do you rank causes? If you're a kid, and I know there are children here, and you've been speaking to a lot of children, and you're excited about a lot of things and you want to make a difference, how do you, you're only one person, and you're only one person. How do you decide what to do now? I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I often am asked this a little bit differently, where, where people say, you know, well, what should I care about, or what should kids care about? And I say, well, you should ask kids. Kids will tell you what they care about. And I think it is incumbent on us as adults to then help kids um, sort through kind of what they might want to do now, what they might want to do tomorrow, um, how best to begin. I think often beginning is the hardest step. And um, we often, I think all of us are challenged by um, kind of the how question, how to do something, which is why I end each chapter um, with literally a how to get going guide, being clear that these are not all the things that um, a kid can do on these issues, but they're hopefully suggestions. Uh, because I think, too, um, one thing I was really struck by in kind of researching this book and then talking to kids at various um, stages of the process and now talking to kids about the book um, is how kids often change what they're doing, too, because they realize something might be more fun or more effective or that they're better at kind of being an advocate or organizing. I mean, I think really it's about just sort of helping kids begin, helping kids think about kind of what is likely to succeed and then supporting them through their trial and error because they'll figure out what feels right to them and kind of where they're seeing an impact on something they really care about or not. You talk about a couple, several actually, organizations that you think are particularly worthwhile. Did you want to mention a couple of names tonight? Because maybe some people could write some down. Sure. Um, I think it, it depends, again, speaking now as an adult. I think we really do have to start with what kids in our lives right. care about. Right. Um, and then trying to match kind of what they care about with either um, kids who are leading in that area to see if they would want to do something similar or to help kids plug in to organizations that are making a big difference. So, for example, um, one of the things that I, I read about in the book is that one out of five kids in this country is food insecure. Uh, and oh, no, would you explain that first? I have, sure, okay. sure. So food insecure um, is sort of a quite technical sounding term for something that is profoundly serious. Um, and it means someone who is either hungry or who doesn't know with a high degree of confidence where her his next meal is coming from. It's pretty extraordinary that um, we have more than 15 million kids in our country who are food insecure. Uh, and I talk about uh, food insecurity a lot in It's Your World um, because probably every kid knows someone who has seen someone who looks like them who is food insecure. And No Kid Hungry is the largest effort 
um, across the nation to work with not only food banks to ensure that food banks are reaching out to families and are safe, comfortable environments for parents to bring their children to, um, but also working to help schools um, feed kids even when they're not in school. So whether that's at night or on weekends or during the summer, and there are lots of ways for kids to engage in No Kid Hungry, whether that's to help um, be advocates or, or to raise money. So I talk about No Kid Hungry and highlight some of the kids that are doing amazing work to fight hunger in their own communities um, through raising awareness and also kind of by raising money. And that's sadly a challenge in every single county in our country. Um, so it's something that if a kid really cares about, she or he knows they can make a meaningful difference because sadly the challenge exists everywhere. Is it easier to educate kids than adults? Because you said something that struck me. Um, While only half of adults believe that human activity contributes to climate change, a majority of eighth graders know that it's true. So, um, you know, are we not smarter than an eighth grader? Are kids less cynical than adults? What's, you know? I I don't know. I mean, I think that um, is something uh, we'd have to look to Pew and some of the others that sort of do this longitudinal tracking. Um, But certainly, I think there's more kind of ideology um, embedded in sort of the adult uh, surveys than in the surveys of of eighth graders that are also done annually across a a wide range of topics because middle school is often seen kind of as the pivot for when kids start to really think of themselves as being part of the world. And so that's why kind of surveys on kind of climate change awareness and, and the causes and not the causes um, are so interesting. So I, I think it's, it's partly generational. I hope those kids are going to grow up still believing in climate change and kind of be edified with science and less so with ideology. But I also think in general, um, we see this in other areas too, uh, kids are just less ideolo- ideological than even their own parents. Right. Is there some way that people can speak so that you can change minds? Well, I think that... I ask for personal reasons as well in my own life. Um, this is why you didn't want to go to dinner with your parents. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, I, one of the things that um, I talk about in It's Your World, and certainly something that's come up a lot um, already in the last week, are variations on this. And I think it's you know where people say, you know, should I talk to... Um, my friends or my parents just using facts, or should I really tell stories? Which is like a pretty sophisticated question from a kid who's already thinking about how to make a persuasive argument. Um, And so I I talk about in the book, and I've I've talked to kids now um, across the country about really being clear kind of what they're trying to convince someone to do. Are they trying to convince someone to just pay attention to something? Are they trying to convince someone to vote differently? Are they trying to convince someone to contribute money? And then who really is their audience? Um, Because sometimes I think statistics will be more compelling and sometimes stories will be more compelling. Sometimes seeing something will be more compelling. So I think the answer really varies. Um, But certainly I think kids are far more willing to kind of listen to their friends um, and to at least give their friends um, their attention when they think some someone really cares about something passionately. Um, and often kind of friends are the best advocates. It's also why I think it's important um, to not belittle how much we need to continue to encourage kids to be good friends, to stand up to bullies, to create safe space for their friends to talk about things that might be concerning them. 
um, it might not kind of be on the same order of kind of the amazing kids that are turning, you know, used um, cooking oil into biodiesel, um, but it's still, I think, really important. Did you have friends that you did everything with when you, when you started your activism? Absolutely. Yeah, who were they? Um, so one of my closest friends still today, uh, we I supported each other in everything, kind of including the zany and the crazy as well as in sort of the quite serious and the earnest. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, is important too. And one of the things I talk about in It's Your World is it's important to recognize um, we don't have to do everything alone uh, and that oftentimes we can't do everything alone and that we'll be more effective if we do things in partnership, whether that is kind of the kid who's working on hunger who recognizes that he'll be more effective working with No Kid Hungry um, and the local 4-H club in his area than by himself, or whether that is Celia from Hong Kong who was trying so hard to raise awareness about um, the role that Hong Kong consumers and Chinese consumers were playing in the poaching crisis um, and the illegal slaughter of elephants, and she just couldn't break through, and she knew she needed a celebrity to help really kind of amplify attention. And so she just kept kind of proverbially knocking on Yao Ming door, the former NBA superstar and probably one of the most recognizable people in Hong Kong and China. Um, and he finally met with her. And today he's one of the most recognized faces of the anti-ivory and anti-poaching effort. So I think it's important for us to realize not only should we not feel the pressure to do everything alone, we'll be more effective if we have the right teammates. And sometimes that's our friends. Right. And sometimes that's someone who can help kind of elevate the platform. You know, you, you talk in your book about all kinds of things that I really knew nothing about. I mean, I do not fall into your 10 to 14-year-old reader demographic. Uh, I fall into the AARP demographic, <laughs> but I do appreciate their discounts at Avis. Rent-a-car. Um, but really, reading your book, I, I mean, I generally like to consider myself somewhat informed, but I didn't know that one out of every seven people on Earth lives on less than $1.25 a day, and that in 2012, 58 million primary school-aged children around the world did not go to school. So I guess I want to ask you, how do you not despair the deeper you get into, into the facts? How do you keep working toward goals? And do you have, along those lines, do you have to teach children to be hopeful or does it come naturally to them? And, and for yourself, I mean, there's just the profound stories of hunger and homelessness in your, in your book are, you know, strike you really deeply. And I just wondered the emotional aspect of it. Um, Why well, I, I wouldn't speak... Uh, for kids, I mean, I think I would, I would defer to kids to speak for themselves. But certainly, um, one of the things I try to do in It's Your World is articulate where we have made progress. Mm-hmm. So even if we haven't achieved success, whether success is equal rights and opportunities for girls um, to boys, or whether success is every child in a school where there's a good chance that she or he actually will be able to learn or whether success is um, eradicating hunger. Um, We haven't reached success on any of those dimensions, but we've made more progress on some of them than others. And so I hope that that um, helps kids calibrate um, that there is a case for optimism because when we do focus on problems and we do support what works, particularly when what works comes from the ground up, we are able 
to start knocking down some of these challenges. So I don't know if that um, resonates yet because I haven't actually really been able to talk to a kid who's read my whole book, although I've now met kids who read part of it. Um, But thankfully, um, kids do seem to be optimistic and do seem to feel empowered and have already been sharing, you know, I didn't know this, but now I want to do that to help counteract. Um, Because that's ultimately my hope. I hope that It's Your World um, impacts even one kid in the same way that 50 Simple Things Kids Can Do to Save the Earth impacted me. And that similarly was about kind of big challenges, acid rain, pollution, global warming. Um, But I felt really optimistic because I felt so empowered to make a difference. And I hope that It's Your World has the same impact. Yeah. So you started to get a bigger picture of the world and poverty and injustice. And how did you, as a child, start to square that with your own life and the privileges of your life? Um, Was it confusing to see that and to know that you were living such a different life? I think um, I was always aware of how blessed I was, um, and I give my parents tremendous kind of gratitude for that, um, that I always knew how fortunate I was. And, and fortunate I was not only because of kind of the obvious, like that I lived in the governor's mansion and the White House, but fortunate that I had two parents, that I had two parents who had stable jobs, that I never had to worry about having a roof over my head, I never had to worry about having food to eat, um, that my main concerns were kind of whether my friend Elizabeth and I were going to um, spend the night at her house or my house on Saturday night and who we were going to go to church with on Sunday morning, that kind of my worries were um, nothing akin to the worries that so many people in, in my community faced. Um, and both of my grandmothers, who were tremendously important to me, Um, I think really helped me understand that um, in very profound but also very everyday ways. I mean, my my dad's mom, um, whom I write about in the book, um, she was always very kind of open about the fact that she'd had to make this wrenching decision when my dad was a little boy um, to go to nursing school in Louisiana because she wanted to be able to give him a better life. She was a single mom and she had to make this choice even though it meant she had to be away from him for most of a couple of years. Um, And I just couldn't imagine my parents having to go away for a couple of years to give me a better chance uh, at a future um, that they would want for me. And my mother's mother, um, whom I had the chance to know as an adult, which I didn't um, have the same opportunity, unfortunately, with my dad's mom because she passed away when I was 13, but my mother's mother um, lived with us um, when I was older, and um, she had been abandoned by her parents. She had had to start working to support herself when she was a teenager. Um, She was the first person who kind of made me aware that there were lots of kids around the world who weren't in school, to your earlier kind of citing of that statistic, because she had had to start working, um, and and she was a live-in maid, Um, effectively in in a home Um, and she would wake up uh, at about 4 o'clock in the morning and do chores for a few hours and go to school and then come back and finish her chores and help take care of um, the three little kids where she lived um, even though she herself was still a child and yet she never was bitter or resentful about that she recognized that in many ways she was fortunate compared to other kids in the depression 
um, and that she was still able to kind of imagine a very different life for her family. Um, and she created this home full of love and possibility for her children, even though she'd had no model for that in her own life. And she was born before women had the right to vote in the United States, and she lived long enough to vote for her daughter for president. And so that, to me, is just an amazing story of, of our country, but also kind of, of her tenacity and her optimism, to kind of your earlier question. And, and so because my grandmothers were so kind of not burdened by their history, but not ashamed of their history, and rather kind of candid about their history, um, I realized how much there really is to their, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah, you say that. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? That, you know, if, if anything had been different, um, if kind of I'd been born in a different country at a different point of time, even in our own country, um, if my father had been killed in a tragic car accident before I was born in the way that his father had been killed before he was born, um, if my grandmother hadn't been able to imagine a different life for my mother um, than what she herself had uh, kind of endured, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even be here, right? Much less have had the same advantages and opportunities that I enjoyed and just tried very hard to never take for granted and to be aware of how just very, very, very lucky I was. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you a little White House side trip questions. Um, because they want me to. I have no interest, but... All right, caveat and disclaimer noted. <laughs> yes. Um, so when you moved into the White House and you'd been this really involved kid, kind of a leader, I really think, um, were you at all self-conscious about doing that stuff when suddenly the spotlight was on you? Um, that people would say things? When you talk about bullying and being made to feel bad about yourself. Uh, I, I always have... Um, felt a responsibility to um, help people overcome whatever their biases or presumptions, likely even unconscious presumptions are about me, to just sort of work harder um, than anyone else. Is that hardwired into you? I, I guess so, yes. I mean, I don't remember ever making this conscious choice. I just remember at one point being aware that this is what I did in my life. How can we all have a daughter like you? It's, I, it's kind of amazing. Um, so you talk a lot about your teachers, and you name various teachers, and I really love that because teachers have been really important to me and I think probably to most people out here t today. Um, uh, how did they embolden you? What, how did they affect you? Oh, I, so on Friday, I got to go back to Horse Man. Um, and Horse Man... Not this Horse Man. Yeah, right. sorry, Horseman in Little Rock, Arkansas. Horseman yeah. Arts Magnet School. Very different. Um, when, I, when I was there, it was a junior high school. Um, it's now a middle school. Um, it is, though, most well-known because it was the all-black high school that the nine students in 1957 uh, came from to integrate Little Rock Central High School. Um, so it has a remarkable history, um, and it, it was a remarkable school. Uh, and it clearly still is, as, as judged by the fantastic questions that the kids asked when I was there. And it was so much fun to be back um, in, in my erstwhile junior high school and to meet so many teachers who taught with my teachers 
It's a long time since I was there, so none of my teachers are still there. But to hear stories about kind of what had happened to Mr. Johnson, my lab science teacher. What um, happened to him? Well, he's still, thankfully, he's still alive. Um, and he's apparently, he's, he's gardening a lot now. That's what I was, which seemed like very fitting in retirement for a lab science teacher. Um, I think, you know, I have been so blessed to have great teachers. Um, and, and I talk about only some of them uh, in the book. But I think what really always kind of made my teachers, kind of the great teachers so great, uh, was that they always nurtured my curiosity, um, but also then my sense of, of responsibility. So whether that was to do well on a test or to help start the recycling program, kind of whether that was personal responsibility or collective responsibility. And I just am so grateful um, to the teachers that I had throughout my life. They certainly um, continue to be an influence on me. Um, Back to that White House issue. Uh, Do you, what, did you ever want to rebel? Did you ever want to do anything when you were in the White House? Did you? Not really, which is just kind of sad. Again, right? how it's, can I, I know, have but it's, a daughter like? <laughs> I, I actually, um, I'm, I'm not very, very proud of that in some ways because I think that <laughs> I, I, mean, I was just so serious, and I wish I'd been a little less serious, candidly. Um, but I can't do anything about it now. No, I know. I feel like there should be some sort of organization, like a, a group you could join, like Children of Presidents, COP, and like you could all, you know, get together and. Well, Meg, if you start it, I'll, I'll show up. Yeah, but they won't let me in. Um, also, with uh, a little bit about school, because you do talk about school a lot, um, the books that you read in school, all the books that you mentioned in your book were books that I loved, so we're basically the oh. same. Um, <laughs> You said you loved Nancy Drew and later Beverly Cleary, Ramona Quimby. Who, oh my God. Right? Like, Nosmo King. Not, yes, so, yes. So, so it, Ramona Quimby and Beverly Cleary made these signs to get her father to stop smoking, but she couldn't fit it all on one line, so it was Nosmo King instead of no smoking. Um, and that really inspired me because my grandmother, my dad's mom, asked me what I wanted for um, my birthday before I turned eight, and I said I wanted her to quit smoking. And she did, which I was so happy about, but I was, there was like a 2% of me that was a little disappointed that I couldn't launch my like no smoking campaign following in, in Ramona Quimby's footsteps. Wow. And you read Johnny Tremaine, and there was that part, remember, where he burns his hand? Yes. Do you remember that? Of course I do, the yeah. gold and silver. Yes. Yes. All right. I, <laughs> I'm going to like quiz you on these books. In Encyclopedia Brown, number two, <laughs> did you read Judy Bloom? I did read Judy Bloom. Oh, good. Cool. Um, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, forever. Yes. Like, yes. Oh, all those books like to help sort out all sorts of stuff that girls are going through. We're really through. the same. I mean, she grew up on Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. I grew up on Ann Drive and Syos at Exit 43. It's really it's very similar. I didn't know that. Do you like coffee? No. Oh, we were going What Was that a trick so question? Well. You no, like coffee? I love coffee. You love coffee? No, I can't. I, no. Okay. okay. Um, so... Was there anything that your parents wanted to shelter you from that you saw in the world? Not really. I mean, which I actually think was the right choice, particularly given the world that we live in today. Yeah. Um, I, when I was born, Arkansas still had two-year gubernatorial elections. Arkansas was the last state to move to four-year um, elections. And so when I was little, my dad... Uh, was running for governor um, 
as much as he was actually working to govern. Um, and he, he was governor when I was born, and then he lost in 1982, and then he won again in 1984. Um, and then in 1986, when I was six, um, he was running against a man named Frank White, who represented sort of the ugliest of Arkansas's past. He was a segregationist, he was a misogynist, he was unapologetic about both of those things. He said terrible things about my mother, um, and sort of that she didn't know kind of what she really should be doing as First Lady of Arkansas, like how dare she have a career. Um, And so it was both kind of this vitriolic um, narrative, but it was also deeply personal, not just towards my father, but, but towards my mother and our family. And in response to that environment, um, and I think to help me figure out how to protect and defend myself, candidly, internally as well as externally, um, we had mock debates. And so my mom, dad, and I would rotate who was playing my dad, who was playing Frank White, and who was playing the moderator. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that was really important because it not only helped me realize um, how political the personal attacks were, meaning like they weren't really about my mom. They were very much about kind of Frank White. What he was saying wasn't really about kind of what we wanted for our state and was very much kind of his rearview mirror perspective. Um, But it also helped me understand how to make an argument um, and how to be dispassionate about that argument, even in the face of often kind of rather fervent um, passion on the other side, whatever that other side would be. Were you on a debate team later? I was not on a debate team later. You didn't need one, right? Well, I did Model UN. It was sort of oh. uh, kind of yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah. my son did Model UN too. So oh, good. I, I, was Ger- I was Germany, Canada, and Brazil. Oh, really? Yeah. Not at the same time. Oh. No, not at the same time. Um, so talking about attacks and all of that. Now that the world, now that the internet has come along and changed everything and everything has this rapid quality to it, um, in terms of, well, everything, you can answer sort of in terms of activism too, actually. Not, I want to sort of move away from that attacks to really looking at how fast information is disseminated, how quickly people respond to things. What are the, what are the pluses and minuses uh, in your experience with that? I think the, the pluses are evidenced um, in phenomenon like the ice bucket challenge, which yeah. sort of wasn't really taken seriously at the time, was kind of derided as hacktivism, and yet raised more than $100 million that less than a year later had already led to real research breakthroughs, right. where the scientists absolutely have said kind of without this infusion of capital and confidence, we wouldn't have had the breakthroughs on Lou Gehrig's disease that they ultimately um, have begun to make. And that is, is pretty remarkable. And that wouldn't have happened kind of pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter. So I think there are really positive things. It's also true that kind of negativity, bullying, um, derogatory language, particularly given how um, pervasive uh, anonymity is, uh, also travels more quickly. And so I think we have a real responsibility, particularly thinking about young people, um, to teach young people sort of digital uh, literacy in the same way that I kind of was armed with political literacy, I guess, and kind of mm-hmm. political 
um, acumen as a, as a kid, uh, and also to be good digital citizens in the same way that we try to help kids be kind of good citizens in the offline or real world. Um, and, and yet recognize how powerful it can be to also encourage kids to join or to start movements online, um, whether it's against kind of online bullying or to help join efforts like the Ice Bucket Challenge. So I think, I think it is um, just a, uh, an extension of what we try to do with kids in the real world, but we certainly can't ignore it um, because it's disingenuous um, not only to digital natives, um, but candidly to how we also lead our lives yeah. as adults. Um, the audience has a bunch of questions, so I thought we should try to get to sure. some of them. Um, oh, a bunch about feminism. Oh, all right, so I'm glad. How do you think we should encourage girls not to shy away from feminism? Also, what kind of dog do you have? Um, we have a, a Yorkie Terrier. She just turned eight. Um, oh, yeah. So, and thankfully, she loves our daughter, Charlotte. Um, we were very worried about that, but thankfully Soren is, is I think, quite happy to have someone more her size um, in the house. Uh, you know, I, 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 I talk about feminism in the book um, explicitly instead of just sort of implicitly um, because it is a term that I think a, a lot of people struggle with and particularly a lot of young women struggle with, sort of you know, is it outdated? Is it outmoded? What does it really mean? Is it just sort of relevant to kind of the 1960s or however they perceive the 1960s instead of actually its definition of believing that girls and women should have equal rights and opportunities to, to boys and men? Um, and I talk about in It's Your World that if we can all agree on sort of the purpose of feminism um, and sort of the importance of identifying whether you're a girl or a boy or a woman or a man as a feminist, um, hopefully we won't get bungled up by the language. But if it continues to be problematic for kids, you know, I urge them to then come up with different words that mean the same thing and then to educate the rest of us so that we can kind of not get mired in a um, debate over language when we have so much unfinished business. And there is so much unfinished There's business. There is so much unfinished right. business. Yeah. Here's another one. In this era of media bias, both liberal and conservative, how do you suggest the public attain the, quote, facts in order to stay informed? I think in some ways this is both easier and harder than ever before. Um, it's easier because so much more is live streamed now than ever before, and whether that's what's happening um, kind of via C-SPAN, in the Capitol or debates or political events. And so if just thinking about kind of the, the political realm, there's so much more access to what is actually happening. Um, and so I think actually, you know, in many ways it's, that should be very empowering to us as information consumers, right. you know, that we can remove the filters to, to watch events as they unfold or as they did unfold to, kind of make up our own minds about what actually happened. Right. Um, I think it is more challenging because there is such a cacophony now of um, interlocutors and opinion shapers and makers and curators of information. Um, so I hope that, again, thinking kind of with an eye toward kids, 
um, we help kids understand kind of what is unfiltered and what is filtered. Because everything kind of from any, anyone but kind of the actual person's mouth is yeah. filtered. Right. Right? There is no such thing as kind of an unbiased media outlet, if only because the media outlet is choosing what it thinks is important to share with you or not. Even if there isn't an opinionated gloss or um, kind of posture, even the, the choice and the curation, of course, has an implicit opinion in it. So I hope that we can um, help kids understand how much information they really do have access to um, without filter, and then just to be aware of how then everything else is filtered. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, just so that they're cognizant um, that as soon as they start kind of opening a newspaper, whether it's the old-fashioned kind or online or listening to the radio or watching the nightly news, um, they're being influenced by someone else's choice. What are the biggest misconceptions about your parents and the Clinton Foundation? Uh, Very different questions. I think the biggest misconceptions about my parents probably depend on um, who you're talking to. Um, But I think kind of from the conservative echo chamber, the biggest misconception, at least for me, recognizing that I'm a totally proudly biased daughter, um, is that somehow they're motivated by their own ambitions alone. And to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with being ambitious. And yet my parents have always tracked their success by whether or not people are better off when they stop something than when they started. And so absolutely, they are ambitious, but they judge their success by the impact they've had or haven't had in other people's lives. Um, And I think the metric of success in life is really important. Um, Oh, good. Thank you. I'm glad someone said they agree. Um, (laughs) I feel like you're very quiet. Um, And I think, in some ways, the same is true for the Clinton Foundation. When my father started the Clinton Foundation, he started to solve a very specific challenge. Um, In 2002, um, outside the United States, antiretrovirals were about ten dollars to $11,000 per person per year for an adult. And there was no um, real uh, market for pediatric antiretrovirals outside the U.S. And so he set about trying to change that from a high-price, low-volume dynamic to a high-volume, low-price dynamic. And he really succeeded kind of through a series of efforts over the um, next few years. And that has set the kind of animating logic for everything that we do at the foundation. Um, again, it's not about sort of his own ambition alone. He is indeed very ambitious, and sort of every success just brings another challenge, and I think I've inherited that. Um, and I think there's also this misconception that somehow um, he or my mother or, or I have ever um, taken any money from the foundation or that it is inefficient um, when in actuality um, we're significantly more efficient if you judge by kind of programmatic expenses than any of our peer institutions. We only spend about 11% of our overhead on um, kind of staff costs, which is pretty remarkable given we have people in 36 countries around the world. Um, And so I don't, I, I think that that's all kind of the political um, echo chamber. And I just am really grateful and proud that 
um, all of our funding partners and all of our programmatic partners um, are still with us. And so I think that says more than anything else that the work we're doing on HIV AIDS, the work that we're doing on empowering women and girls, the work that we're doing here in the US fighting childhood obesity. We have the largest school-based childhood obesity program in the country um, is being judged by those whose opinions we care about, um, the beneficiaries and our programmatic partners as being worthwhile investments. Here's a... How do you feel about your mom becoming president of the United States? Um, have you ever been asked that one? I was, uh, so I have to say the, the last person that asked me that was I think about a, an 11 or 12 year old boy this morning um, who was really pretty adorable. Uh, I, I, I certainly hope that she becomes president. I don't take anything for granted. Um, I hope that she becomes president so fiercely um, because I'm a mom. And I believe so strongly that my mother is the best person for our country at this moment in time for my daughter to grow up in. Talking about a, uh, a woman running for president, uh, someone else asked, I'm a college student. I care so deeply about gender equality, but I often feel helpless to do anything that really makes a difference. What could I do that would actually help? I think a couple of things. I think um, we often take things, uh, I think we often take for granted that people know things that we know, which I think is often not the case. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Like, I think that we think, you know, the, the, the young um, woman or man who wrote the question, um, I think is taking for granted that other people know we still have gender inequality in our country. I don't think a lot of people know about the gender pay gap. I don't think a lot of people know about the stagnated um, levels of um, female participation in the workforce, which hasn't changed in 20 years. And the pay gap has only improved by about six cents in the last 20 years in our country. So we haven't made a lot of progress. I mean, if the pay gap were to continue to shrink at current rates, um, the kids that I'm writing the book for would be in their 50s by the time we had full pay equality in our country. So I think there's a lot we can do to raise awareness about the challenges. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot we can do to make sure that our elected officials are aware that it matters to us, but also that our employers and our schools are aware that it matters to us um, and that we expect there to be honest, candid conversations because we also need kind of major employers like universities and colleges to be part of the solution. So I think there's a lot that any of us can do, particularly on issues that are deeply underappreciated. Uh, and I think that in this country, uh, the lack of gender equality is, is really one of them. Well, someone else asks on a uh, younger level, there are 40 girls here from the Nightingale School, a girls' school. Um, Nightingale Bamford, how can girls help girls? Well, I think girls can help girls um, in a few ways. I think uh, we can support each other. I think we can create safe spaces for each other to talk about issues. I think that so often, um, and I certainly, this was true for me, um, and I, I'm not proud of this, but I think girls put so much pressure 
um, on ourselves, whether girls are um, you know, 13 or, or 35, to you know, try to be perfect, to try to kind of be overly meticulous on every detail of our lives. And I think kind of supporting each other to hopefully recognize that that is not the best use of time and energy, um, and that we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, um, that it is more than okay um, to have tried and not succeeded, whether it's kind of at something in school or trying to make a difference in the world, and that it is better to have tried than never to have tried. Um, we have a saying in my family, it's always better to get caught trying. Um, and, and so I think that there's a lot that girls can do to support each other. Um, and I think that, again, this is an area where I would say it's also so important to recognize you know, we don't have to do things alone. And you know, one of the stories that I tell in the book, and since this seems to be a book, uh, a crowd that's interested in, um, in politics, one of the stories I tell in the book is about a group of, of three girls, none of whom were old enough to vote, but three girls who started a change.org yeah. petition targeted um, to the Commission on Presidential Debates to have a female moderator in the 2012 debates. And they collected more than 100,000 signatures, clearly from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and they delivered the boxes of the printed out signatures to the commission. Um, and although the commission never agreed to meet with them, less than two weeks later, it was announced that Candy Crowley um, would be a debate moderator. So I can't exactly point to causation, but it seems to be like a pretty strong correlation that their activism really mattered. And what I, the detail I didn't go into in the book is that it was one girl's idea um, and one of the girls she'd asked to join her and the third volunteered um, because she thought, well, this is gonna be a lot of work and if there are three of us, that probably would make it easier. So I would also say sometimes um, create the space so that people feel comfortable asking you for support. Um, but sometimes if you think you can be supportive, just step forward and volunteer. Do you know what happened to those girls? Did they go on to be activists? They're all three, well, they're all three in college. Um, one of them is still deeply engaged in all sorts of um, kind of gender equity and equality work. Um, and the other two are still activists, less focused on that, but still kind of one's really interested in the relationship between gender and climate change. Um, and I have no doubt that all three are gonna keep changing the world. Wow, amazing. Um, Oh, here's one I don't think you've ever been asked. Can you see yourself running for office? And if so, what office? Um, so funny, I don't think I've ever been asked the second part of that question except for in my, one of my earliest memories. Um, probably not surprisingly, I also was asked this question this morning um, by one of the kids from PS124 or PS126. Uh, when I was three or four, my dad was running for governor. I have this vivid memory of being um, at a campaign stop, and my dad had finished speaking, was shaking hands, and I was standing off to the side waving a, an American flag. So when you're three or four, there's not a lot else you can do at your parents' campaign event. Um, and this like, lovely older woman came up to me, um, and in some ways, now, looking back, this is pretty remarkable that um, a woman asked this question of a little girl in Arkansas in 1983 or 84, um, but she said, you, you know, Chelsea, do you wanna grow up and be governor one day? And I was like, ma'am, I'm, I'm three or I'm four. Um, and so this is something that I have indeed been asked many times. Um, and I certainly have no plans to. Uh, I right now love the work that I'm doing with the Clinton Foundation. I love um, the teaching that I do at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. I love 
kind of talking to kids about what they're doing um, through the kind of It's Your World book tour. Um, and I'm also really grateful to live in a city and a state and a country where I support my elected officials, yeah. right? where I support my mayor, I support my councilwoman, I support um, the people who represent me in Albany, I support my congresswoman, I support my senators, you know, et cetera, my lieutenant governor, my governor, my president. I mean, I just, you know, it's like I'm really lucky to live in New York City at this point. You didn't say comptroller. Comptroller, comptroller, really attorney like general. I mean, you know, it's true, though. I mean, it's, I just it's, like saying comptroller. Do you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a fun word. Um, and so I think, you know, if at some point either or both those weren't true, where I wasn't fulfilled in what I was doing um, professionally and where I was um, frustrated as a citizen or as a mom, kind of by what was happening in our city or state or country, um, I'd have to ask myself that question. Um, whenever I'm asked that question by a kid, which has happened at every single event thus far, um, I also always say, because I think this is so important, like, I hope you're asking yourself that same question. Right? I hope that you and your friends are asking yourself that same question. Like, do you think that you um, have the passion and the competence and the commitment to run for and hold office because you think that's the best way for you to advance whatever change you want to see in the world? Because I don't think this is a question that should just be asked of someone who has the last name Clinton. I think this is a question that is so important that all of us ask ourselves, but particularly young people. And so I just hope that's something else that it's your world really conveys that it's not a political book, but it recognizes that politics is important and who participates in the political process really matters. Yeah. Now, now, I know that your daughter Charlotte is already over 11 months old, and that may sound young, but she's closing in on a year now. Her birthday's in, what, five days? What is Saturday. she doing to change the world? Um, and, and are you concerned that she's not doing more? Um, well, at the moment, I just am concerned that she... Um, well, at the moment, I'm very proud that as she has started to stand and is teetering, yeah. that she's no longer falling forward on her head, that she's figured out how to fall backwards on her bum. I think that is an uh, unappreciated um, <laughs> developmental milestone. Um, so, no, I just am so... I'm so happy to be her mom and so grateful yeah. to be her mom and I'm just so excited for every day with her. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much thank for, you so much, for your book thank and you. for helping young people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92iondemand.org.